Hi everyone, I'm Karen Atkin and this is the German Technologist Podcast. I'm here today with Dominic Endicott, who was the first investor in Great Call way back in 2007 through his fund Nauta Capital. Today, Dominic is still a venture partner at Nauta, but he's also the founding partner of Forgen Ventures, a VC that invests in HTech. Hi, Dominic. Uh, happy to Hello. have you here today. Yes, thank you very much. How have you been? I've been very good. Cool. And enjoying the summer. I'm enjoying the summer as well. So tell us a little bit about Forgen Ventures. What's the size of the fund? Who are the other partners? So uh, the way we're thinking about it is a fund focused on what we call age tech, which I see as the intersection of the longevity economy and digitization. And to some extent, it builds on what we saw at Great Call, where we saw a very large company being built, um, to some extent premised on, on targeting segments of the age population that weren't well served, but bringing digital solutions to that. And my belief is that that's going to be an exploding and very large segment. And uh, I've teamed up with a group from North Star Ventures in the UK to start 4Gen Ventures. Uh, and our goal would be to raise a first fund somewhere in the range of 50 to 100 million pounds and to invest in somewhere between 10 and 20 companies, typically at the later part of seed or earlier part of Series A. But we'll also be starting a few companies from scratch. So you're also going to have like a venture studio as part of the fund? Correct. And, and we'll also work with accelerators that may have companies that they're developing and partner with them when we see kind of an interesting age tech angle. Awesome. What can you tell me about your involvement in Great Call? Well, um, so Great Call, I was first introduced to the company in 2006 when it was very small. And a former colleague of mine and a friend, uh, David Inns, uh, I happen to think could be a very good CEO. I ended up introducing the CEO to the company. He joined uh, Great Call in 2006. And then we were the first investor in the company. And then after us, we attracted a number of other investors. So we got in fairly early or very early. And we, we also were instrumental in bringing in the CEO. We did this under Nauta Capital and then have been involved for uh, you know, the last 10 years until the company was sold. We sold it in 2000 and, uh, 2017 to a private equity shop. And then one year later, they sold it to Best Buy. So I was involved from about 2007 to 2017. Do you regret selling it before it was sold to Best Buy? I mean, I think uh, one of the interesting lessons is that companies often take a while to really see the value accretion. And for many reasons, it made a lot of sense for all of the investors, including us, to sell when we did. So we were very happy with that sale. But I think it does illustrate that the value continues to grow. And I think today... In 2019, I, I would assume Great Call is worth even more than what Best Buy acquired it for, right? So these companies that sometimes you have to be patient, but at some point they really start to take off and, and gain a lot of value. So you mentioned that you are looking to invest in late seed stage companies. So what are you looking for in a company? Like what do you need to see from the founders before you can write a check? So one of the things we've seen is that typically from the moment of ideation to what we'd call late seed it could be three or four years of, of pretty hard work to first develop the concept then start to build some technology prototypes start to get some revenue 
And that's a really tough space. And there's a lot of specialists that are doing that kind of stuff, accelerators, angel investors, and so on. And what we see is is that uh, often companies get to a point where they may have, say, you know, thirty thousand, forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars a month in revenue. So maybe about a half million a year, and they're starting to really take off. But they're often still too early for the Series A funds, the proper A funds, and yet they need maybe two, three million dollars to make the next jump, and so. We find it attractive because, to some extent, a lot of the early risk has been taken out of that point. So, so very few companies that start get to that point. So, effectively, we're looking at fewer companies. But from their perspective, they often need somebody that's going to give them a small amount of capital, but not require them to sort of build a unicorn. Um, give them some optionality to to see what happens and decide later, you know, where they want to go, what kind of path they want to go. So, so I think it's both a good place to invest money, but also a very good stage uh, for entrepreneurs. And, and a big part of this is to give them optionality to say, you know, if, if all you want to do is raise a couple million dollars and that's enough, you know, we're fine with that. It may not be the perfect outcome for our fund, but but we think actually we're doing a great role and, and we'll probably get a nice multiple. And and if, you, if this is the beginning of, of building a very, very large company, we'll be ex- extremely excited. But we prefer that you, the entrepreneur, are the one that makes that decision. Sounds good. So you basically want to take off like the risk in er, investing in an early, early stage, but still come into the company at a relatively reasonable valuation. At a reasonable valuation, uh, but also a company that still has a lot of shaping to be done and, and give us an opportunity to participate in some of that shaping. So typically it may be a company that has fewer than 10 employees. It's really still getting going. And so there is an opportunity to, to work with the entrepreneurs to sort of develop the strategy. So would you describe yourself as a smart money investor? Um, <laughs> well, you know, it, it's a, <laughs> it's a tough space and luck is as uh, much part of it and, and sort of timing and there's so many factors. But I think specifically in the age tech space, one of the things that we have done and we've spent a good part of the last couple of years trying to really get smart in the sense of just read up on everything, talk to a lot of people, try and think about problems. And one of the things that I see is a sort of macro shift in venture capital is it's going from sort of technology out to solution in, right? Where you're sort of thinking about a problem and then thinking about ways to solve that problem. And then how do you harness the different technologies that are available and which ones are the best technologies to solve that problem? And so we have, uh, we have thought a lot about what is longevity? Um, is it just about old people? The answer is no. And what is the intersection of longevity and, and digital? And, and how is that going to happen? And what are ways to build interesting companies and to solve problems? And so I think that depth of thought, and we've done quite a bit of writing, hopefully is materializing our discussions with entrepreneurs. And going back to the Great Call discussion, when I invested there, I didn't do it specifically because it was about dealing with older people, but more because I, I thought they had a very good sort of simple solution that I thought a big part of the market, not just old people, but everybody wanted something simpler. And I liked the fundamental economics of, of our customer base because they didn't churn very much and the cost of acquisition was very good. 
but I wasn't sort of deep into understanding sort of the longevity sector. So I've tried to spend a good part of the last couple of years reading up and thinking about it and becoming smarter. That's a good attitude to have when establishing a fund for sure. Do you intend to invest in companies from all over the world or are you focused on the US-UK market? So I think for now, um, given that most of my background and experience has been in, in the sort of the US East Coast and the UK, but primarily the US East Coast, uh, those would be the two areas that, that I would be gravitating to. We think of 4Gen as a global proposition, and we think that there's really interesting stuff going on everywhere. Israel, as you know, is, is, is a hotbed of activity in tech as in every other area. So we'd be very excited to partner with Israeli companies. We see some interesting stuff happening in, in areas of Asia, like South Korea, Japan, Singapore. Uh, China will be a big market. And continental Europe has some very interesting propositions. So I think we, we, we want to sort of stay fairly global in mindset, especially as we look at startups that may be working with large companies. We'll definitely want to be pairing up with Fortune 1000 companies, but probably for the the sake of staying focused, uh, we want to stay initially in, in kind of the band between London, Boston, and New York. Because that's where all the partners are based. Um, so, yes, right now, um, the, the partners are sort of basically between the, the UK and North Star is in Newcastle in, in northern part of UK. Uh, I'm between London and Boston. And we have other people where talking to that could be entrepreneurs in residence or eventually other investment professionals that are somewhere between London, Boston, New York, and Newcastle. Sounds exciting. So what made you make some of your past investments? You could, you could use Great Call as an example, but you could also talk about some other startups that you invested in. So as having already spoken about Great Call, let me sort of pick up on some other investments. Um, what I, one of the things I've been doing uh, quite a bit over the last five years uh, within Nauda is investing in B2B companies with uh, what we, uh, Nauda calls a capital-efficient model. And the basic idea is that you know, one of the hardest problems in venture capital is, is to sort of solve the power law paradox, which is that you know, ultimately a very small percentage of companies drive the majority of the returns but most VCs are not going to be lucky enough or good enough to be <laughs> the ones making those investments. And, and therefore, if you don't think you're in the sort of top 30 VCs, which by definition, <laughs> most people are not, <laughs> um, how can you play? And, and, and the solution to that was, was to develop a capital efficient strategy, which basically meant that you could still have a very good fund, even if you didn't happen to hit a unicorn. And the way to do that is to manage the carefully the investment that goes in at early stage so in the first two or three years of our investment strategy and then uh wait and see let let in a sense the market the entrepreneur other factors tell you whether you know this is destined to be a very big company and then you sort of go you know much heavier on capitalizing or you just let it go in a in a sort of different path where maybe a company that only raises in its history three to five million could sell for fifty million dollars, and the entrepreneurs make a lot of money. We we get a nice return for our investors, and so so that's sort of been my my investment strategy, and I like that. I think it's worked well. Um, I've had a few exits where 
you know, we've been able to get very good returns, even though they haven't sold for huge amounts of money. And if you look at the exit market, you know, the median of the top quarter quartile of venture capital returns is roughly like a $60 million exit. So that's, if you're doing quite well, that's probably where you're going to be. And so tuning your model to, to that uh, has been a big part of what I've been doing and that I, I'd like to continue doing in my future investment career. Sounds like a plan. So when you're looking at the edge tech market, which you have been doing for a decade plus, what are some of the gaps or opportunities that you see today? So we see this is a monster, right? So just by, by thinking about the numbers, roughly the, the longevity economy, which is sort of the underlying sector that we're investing into, is about 20 trillion in GDP per year. If you compare that with, say, financial services, which gave rise to fintech, that's about 11 trillion. So it's actually bigger than, than the, the, the underlying kind of fintech space. And yet fintech has become very quickly a huge venture vertical. So there's a big opportunity for age tech to get very, very big. The other thing that's interesting is that today, the biggest players in, in what I'd call age tech, which is that the intersection of the 50 plus economy and digitization are actually very familiar companies. So Amazon, Apple, even Facebook is getting pulled into it. Companies like Airbnb are rapidly uh, increasingly becoming focused on the 50 plus and the 60 plus customer. And so uh, what you're seeing is that, I mean, initially when you sort of think about age tech, it sort of feels about, you know, older people with, you know, senior care solutions and so on. Turns out it's a highly vibrant, highly competitive space it's also where the bleeding edge technologies are being developed. If you think about, effectively, one of the problems with a smartphone or an app is that it's not fully accessible for everybody. And so older people often find that they can't use it that well. And so if you look at you know, things like artificial intelligence and voice and gesture detection and robots and wearables, Partly what these are doing is making it easier for people that are older or that have problems accessing technology to get access to that. Yeah. But they need more intelligence, more processing, right? So, so I see that as, as a really interesting space. I think one of the big gaps is that um, people, there's, there's a lot of ageism. Yeah, people sure. do not design for, for older people. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lack of business models. So I think very few companies have figured out how to make money. And one of the things we did well at Great Call was to do that. But I, have, I think we also learned some of the mistakes that you can make by becoming too much viewed as an old person's company. And every time we try to sort of go younger, it, it got harder for us. Um, so I think I see the, those as big gaps. And then the third one is the intersection of longevity and the real estate world. And I see a massive opportunity to rethink how a home looks like. And that could be absorbing ultimately billions and billions of dollars of capital and building a lot of value. And that's a huge gap that is not well treated today. Yeah, for sure. Housing for the aging population is going to be huge in the next decades. If I could add to that, a lot of the housing for older people is destined for um, to be very segregated and just for a bunch of older and older and older people. And I don't think that model necessarily works. The, the, the thing we see is a really exciting opportunity is actually recombining different generations into housing solutions 
as well as different incomes, right? So rather than sort of the segregated path that much of the world is on, is actually recombining and bringing people back together. And and we I see that as a huge opportunity. And a lot of the sort of the traditional senior care is really not in that direction. So I think there's a way of thinking about it across all generations. And to some extent, our name for Gen is really a nod to the fact that you always have to design for all generations simultaneously. Yeah, for, for sure, multi-generational housing. There are some models all over the world of organizations trying to do that, but we haven't seen something like the we work of multi-generational housing. But maybe that's like the opportunity to try and build Stay that. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> so, Stay tuned. We're, we're developing something like yeah? that. Yeah. Okay. We, we will stay tuned and I will update once you like reveal it. Where do you see the space in like five to 10 years? So I think by size, the global spending will have grown from 20 trillion to about 30 trillion. And I think the age tech um, economy, which today I size roughly about 800 billion a year, uh, will probably be somewhere in the order of 2 trillion. So it'll be a very large economy. As I mentioned earlier, I think that the dominant tech giants are going to be increasingly very well positioned in age tech. To some extent, you could say they already they've are. already conquered the millennial. They, they, they already are, but, but they're quiet about it yeah. um, for a number of reasons. And I, I don't think the mainstream Fortune 1000 companies are truly aware of how well positioned these companies are. Because if you think about the, the 50 plus customer is ultimately the jewel in the crown of many traditional consumer mm-hmm. companies. And so you think about financial relationships, healthcare, all these areas, as the digital tech giants begin to encroach more deeply into those, that's going to eat away at core profits. And so I think what you're going to see in five to 10 years is that will become much more obvious than it is today. I also think that creates a lot of opportunity for venture capital, because I think traditional relationships are going to get broken up, and older people are going to be looking for new providers. And part of this has to do with the longevity issue itself. As people are realizing, hey, instead of, you know, in, in the past, maybe, uh, you know, you worked till you were 60, and then you just knew you'd retire, and, you know, that's what you did. Now people are sort of getting into their 50s and realizing that they may have another 40 years. They probably have another career in them. So they're going to have to reinvent themselves. That may require them to do radical things like downsizing their home. They may have to go and take some new courses and learn something new. They may have to find new ways of doing work. And and so their world is going to be very different. And, And so why would your traditional insurance company or a bank or healthcare provider necessarily serve those needs. And in fact, one of the things I've seen is that traditional companies have been so focused on sort of chasing the millennial dollar that they've become unaware of the fact that their most profitable, most valuable, most loyal customers are actually under a process of massive change and that they're not necessarily going to be serving them that well. So that creates opportunities, certainly for the digital tech giants, but also for new startups that are really understanding these needs and positioning themselves to serve them. Um, so I think it's going to be a very vibrant space. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting for sure. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm starting a company and I want to create some tech for the older population, what advice would you give me? I'd say two or three areas. One is whenever possible, try and think about solutions that will work for everybody, not just for older people. 
And, you know, the, the classical example of this is the OXO brand. But even if you look at a lot of the features of the iPhone, even though they're not, they don't feel like they're for older people, they actually, to some extent, have been designed around the needs of older people, but they're appealing to everybody, right? So I think from a design perspective, think multi-generational and think radical. For, for example, right, it may be that the best strategy to eventually target older people is to first attract younger people. Uh, I'll give you an example. If you think about an electric scooter, mm-hmm. um, that feels like that's not for your 70-year-old. And yet, as more and more young people adopt electric scooters and they start to change the rules on the ground, and now you get better paths, better consensus around a shift away from cars in cities and towards new forms of electric vehicles, uh, eventually you start to see electric scooters that are a bit more robust, more stable, uh, some versions that actually older people can can take, and also freeing up some of that space. I mean, older people tend to be the, the most hurt by by drivers. Yeah. So the, if you look at sort of the rate of, uh, you know, who gets killed by, by cars. In Tel Aviv, they're also hit by scooters. We've had some casualties here. Fair, okay, fair enough. So it, it's a little bit of a wild west. But, but ultimately, you know, the combination of micromobility broadly defined, electric scooters, electric bikes, and it has to be managed, right? So you have to manage the speed because, yeah, certainly something that's going at 30 miles an hour, whatever it is, could actually cause serious injury. But, I mean, cars are killing a million people a year around the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's the biggest problem in terms of mortality that we don't talk about, and it, it impacts older people. And so sort of paradoxically, some of these developments could eventually benefit older people, even though initially you may target younger people. Or another example of this is if you want to make a place that's truly multi-generational and exciting for 50-plus empty nesters, you may want to first attract younger people to move in and create a little bit of buzz, and that will tend to attract older people. Whereas if the first people that move into an apartment block are older, that tends not to attract younger people. And, and maybe that's not the way it should be, but it probably is. So thinking around how different generations kind of coexist and the different linkages between them, even again, if you take Airbnb, the first wave of users, you know, guests were younger. The hosts were also pretty young. It was mostly young people hosting other young people. Today, I think 60 plus is like 30% of Airbnb in terms of the hosts, but also in terms of guests. Older people are much more comfortable today than they were five years to do Airbnb. And so it's become a great service for them. So I think the, 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 the main point is to think multi-generationally. The other piece is to think truly around from the perspective of, of an older person. And in fact, one of the things that Great Call does very well is it designs uh, putting themselves in not just in the mindset, but also in the body of an older person and wearing, for example, special suits to enable you to at least get closer to what what is the experience of having arthritis, having problems walking, and so on. And I think that's going to be very hard given that the design world tends to be so focused on younger people. So how do you sort of take yourself into into somebody that's, that's going to feel about things very differently than you do today? That's great advice. And that was actually my last question. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, I, I think... Other than I'd be happy to talk to entrepreneurs uh, that are going down this path. And I learn from every interaction as much as I can give in ideas. 
So uh, my, my door is uh, always awesome. open. Awesome. I will put the link to ForGen's website on this post. Dominic, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's all we have for today. For more EdgeTech content, visit thegerontechnologies.com. You could also subscribe to the newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter.